um, true to Renew fashion, we break off into small groups. So make sure you meet the people around you and uh, try to get to know someone for the first time. And uh, here's our two questions. Would you rather exclusively eat pork for the rest of your life, although you're allowed to drink through a straw and have other type of substance, right? So you could drink like, uh, like vegetable juice. So, so you're not going to just uh, die out of lack of nutrition. But, you, but in terms of solid and anything you have to chew, it has to be pork. Or lose a random finger without the pain. So one of your 10 fingers will just disappear. So you have to choose between those two options with, your, with your, someone next to you. And then the second question is, when have you felt pain for someone around you or a stir, story you've heard? You know, maybe it showed up on your Facebook feed. Uh, maybe it's a, a close friend sharing their story and you, you cried with them or you felt really moved to your core for them. All right, so make sure you include everyone around you. If you know the person next to you, bring someone else in that you don't know. And I'll come back in a few minutes, and we'll, we'll talk about the sermon. All right. How many of you guys would rather eat pork exclusively for the rest of your life? Raise your hand. Oh, man. Okay, we got like maybe a third. Okay, how many people would rather lose a finger, a random finger? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, 20% chance of losing a pinky, which I feel like doesn't do much for me. Um, you know, I could keep my thumbs most likely, 80% chance of keeping the thumbs. I feel, I feel comfortable with that. Um, and then when I think about pain, right, when, when you felt a story resonate with you and the pain that you've maybe heard or, or felt in your life. Personally, I, I think again about the foster kids camp that I got to go to a few weeks ago. And I just fell in love with these kids. It was so easy. They were so, they were so great. I remember again, Zach walking off of the bus with a straight face. He looked like a gangster with two earrings, even though he's only 10. And we're, he's walking through this cheering line but he just looks like so unhappy to be there. I was like, dear God, please be with this counselor. They're going to have the worst time. And then he walks straight to me. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm the counselor I prayed for. And, um, but just seeing him feel safe, uh, be loved by all these different people in the camp, find family. And then as his shell opened up to be, to be able to love other kids there, you know, like, after I taught him how to swim and dive, he picked up six, seven pool toys from the bottom and made his way over to the shallow end and distributed it to, like, all these little five-year-olds that he was, like, he was, like, their hero, you know? He was their Robin Hood. And then um, we had a kid who is uh, autistic in our cabin, and um, I remember when we were doing a gift time because we celebrate their birthday and we buy them all these gifts and get, they get to choose. He was always kind of looking out for um, this, this kid and trying to find him the best gifts that he would like to play with. And the whole, all of the guys just really took care of this kid and, and made sure that he was cared for, that he wasn't bullied, that he was tagging along, to make sure that uh, he wasn't too far away. They just kind of took care of him. And, and there were parts of me that just really felt 
um, in grief as I came home. And my poor wife, she had to hold down the fort for six days uh, with our two-and-a-half-year-old being preg- pregnant. And I come home, she's, hope- she's hoping I'd help her, but I, just, I was just sad for days and days on end because I, I thought about uh, my kid, Zach, and him having to go back to a group home, um, him having to close off again because there are probably kids that were mean to him or he wouldn't feel safe um, to to do what he was doing at camp. And I thought about um, the kid who has autism and his story. At at the cabin, there were times, this is a little graphic, he would hang off the top of the um, shelf and take off his pants and make like sexual sounds as he's thrusting his hip. And I I was like, oh man, like let's look away, let's put your pants back on. The other kids are like thinking it's gross. and it was, all those things are true, but his counselor was like, he's probably been sexually abused. There's just no reason for him to know those sounds and for him to make that action unless um, he just had that history. And I just couldn't stop thinking, because I know him and we cared about him, and it just made me angry and in pain. And again, I came back and I kept giving Danita the hypothetical scenario, what if I brought home five kids? What if you opened the door and I had five kids with me? And I was like, babe, our family's eight now. It took me a while to do math. That's how many five kids are. And uh, she kept saying, I'd be so mad because I wouldn't know where to feed them and what beds they would sleep in. We had to go buy beds because she goes really deep into the hypotheticals, you know, as if they're real. And, um, and, and I think over the, the few, many days, I just couldn't shake this sense of pain in my heart. And so I met with all, all these different mentors and I finally, I sat down with the director of the camp and I was just sharing with her like, every day I'm grieving. My poor wife, I'm just useless to her and I don't know how to stop being sad. And she says, well, if, if you want to love uh, the foster community, you, you don't stop being sad. Like you just kind of carry it with you, start to, be friends with the pain and the sadness. And she's been a a case manager for a long time and she still handles a lot of uh, cases through OC United of people who are in foster or have aged out of foster. And she describes it like, my heart is shattered all across Orange and LA County. You know, because these kids just take a piece of my heart and they walk away with it. And she talked about two kids in particular that will just call her and it just wrecks her. Like she'll be on vacation or with her family and when they call her, especially, she just can't function and she just breaks down and she has to like either adopt them or give them to someone else because it just, it just destroys her. But she said, man, unless you feel that pain, you can't even walk into this world and make a difference because they won't believe you care. You know, like if you're not hurting with them, you probably don't love them and they definitely won't think that you care about them because it's the pain and the empathy that is the first step into doing anything um, that makes sense to these these kids. And when I think about this passion, uh, this passage we're going through, I think that's the most surprising part of this passage is the pain that Jesus feels. And it just starts making so much sense um, as I think about it. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn to, I'm sorry, it's Matthew 20, verse 
21, verse 1 to 5. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, uh, says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. They took, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the tree and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of them and that had followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And we're adding to this passage, uh, Luke chapter 19. And he kind of continues on from that narrative. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you and encircle you and helm you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So here we have the triumphant entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. And this is a big moment for his disciples and followers. They're expecting Jesus to ride into Jerusalem and claim the throne for the Jews, the Israelites. But it was a huge threat against the Romans who governed and ruled over Jerusalem and the Israelites at the time. But it was also a threat to the religious establishment, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that have I would say, given their allegiance to Rome in many ways because they made them comfortable and, and gave them power. So Jesus, as he's walking in with, with his disciples and with his followers, they're kind of expecting a political campaign, right? So imagine someone walking into D.C. saying, I'm the, I'm the president of the United States. That's a threat to our government, especially if thousands of people are coming around them chanting the same thing, right? It, it would be... It would be usurping and um, undercutting uh, Donald Trump. And so in the same way, this could have easily be, been seen in that moment. People are proclaiming the kingship of Jesus as he's going into Jerusalem. But he goes in in the worst way possible. <laughs> it's not a motorcade. It's not a giant steed, right? That's how the Romans would walk, in, walk into cities. It would just be troops and this, this parade of power and strength on top of the, the biggest, most war-torn horse wielding a sword or banners. Jesus comes on, on a donkey and a colt. And I'm sure his disciples are like, this is like the worst choice of an animal to ride on. But, you know, they've kind of accepted that Jesus does things in a weird way. But probably to the disciples, they are just so discouraged by him crying. <laughs> like, no one cries 
when they're conquering. I, I remember uh, when Hillary and Trump were uh, campaigning against each other and, and they were just they just were under a microscope. Hillary teared up for a moment. Do you guys remember that? And they played it over and over on the news where she like bent her head to the right and, and teared and, and talked about how she didn't want America to go backward. And um, it was this like big thing. I, I saw so many um, news clippings of that because they would ask, like, does she feel that sincerely? Is that a good thing? Do we want a leader that might cry? You know, just like hundreds of questions. Jesus walking into Jerusalem weeping. And I'm sure his disciples are like, this is the worst, you know. This is the worst campaign, military campaign I've ever seen. But why is he weeping? As he looks at the city, there's just deep grief in his heart. Because first, they've missed that he, his role in coming to earth, that the peace he was bringing at this point wasn't a peace of, of military and sword and, and dominating the Roman Empire. It was a peace with God. It was a peace uh, of our soul, of being forgiven of sin. And secondly, he was looking into the future. He was looking at AD 70, where uh, Titus would come and siege siege Jerusalem and burn down the temple. He gives a really specific prophecy here, which is pretty cool. Dave and I, uh, Dave was giving me this really cool factoid, right? It says that not one stone uh, will be left on another. They will not leave one stone on another. And he's talking about the temple here. So as the Romans burned down the temple, it was filled with gold, and this gold melted down and seeped in between the stones of the temple. And so Josephus, in, in his book, Jewish Wars, he's a historian um, for, the Jew, for the Romans. He actually talks about the soldiers after the fire cooled and the metal um, moved into the crevices of these stones. They, they detached each stone from itself to, to be able to take the gold from around the corners of the stone. And so Jesus fulfills a really specific prophecy. It's so challenging, in fact, that modern uh, scholars who don't believe in Jesus' divinity has to place the writing of the scripture past 70 AD. They have no choice because of, of such a specific prophecy that is held here. And at the same time, we think about Luke and Acts being written together. And the end of Acts doesn't end with, with um, Paul's martyrdom. It, it, it very much seems like Paul is still alive during this time that, Acts is, uh, that Luke finished his writing Acts. And Paul uh, is, is martyred in the, in the 60s. So, so there's really strong evidence that this is written prior to Paul getting martyred and, and great evidence that Jesus is, is speaking, of course, uh, before his time as, as a prophet. That's actually a, a huge aside. The part that I really um, am thinking about and has kind of worn in my soul is that he wept, that he felt deep internal pain um, for the people of Jerusalem. And when I think about Jesus' ministry, and, and Dr. Ken pointed this out, he leads into his ministry each time with deep compassion for people, right? When he heals, uh, when he goes to a large crowd, he, he has compassion on them, he, and then he heals their sick. Uh, Dr. Ken talked about him having compassion on the blind men, and so he, he, he gives them sight again. And then, again, another large crowd, he has compassion on them. 
this, this visceral gut reaction, and he sees them as a sheep without a shepherd, so he teaches them. And what does this idea of compassion mean? Um, Dr. Ken talked about it, and here I, I think as we explore more of the word, we look at the Latin, the Latin word, uh, compati, and it means to suffer with. That there's an element of pain when we feel compassion for someone. We're taking on their pain. And this is from Compassion International. This is compassion means someone else's heartbreak becomes your heartbreak. Someone else's suffering becomes your suffering. True compassion changes the way we live. And when I think about compassion or pain, I think this is the first step into ministry. This is the first step into humility and sacrifice for others. You know, I, I hear a lot about why people do good things or why people help others. And usually I hear that I help others because it makes me feel good, right? Have you guys heard that before? Hey, why are you serving here? Why are you doing this thing? Oh, it makes me feel good. I, I feel better about myself. But I would suggest to you that helping others because you feel their pain is a much greater, more noble, more sustainable, more powerful reason. And when I think about the people who have really made an impact and who have sacrificed beyond themselves is because they felt the pain of others. They walked into a space instead of thinking about, is this making me feel good? They're thinking about and embodying the pain of another person. And so compassion and feeling another's pain is more powerful, more sustainable, and more selfless than doing something because it makes me feel good, right? Because if, it, if I'm doing it for that reason and with that approach, first of all, it's, it's more about me than the other person. It's about me feeling good, right? That's the focal point, not someone else's pain. And secondly, feeling good, I think, is always a lesser motivation than pain. I, I, I just think that pain is our greatest motivator for, for action and for sacrifice. And, and at some point, when you're giving to another person, it's not going to feel good anymore. Right? It's the pleasure just, is just not worth it. But if we embody someone else's pain, if we really empathize with them, that can carry us. Um, I remember hearing the story of a, of a very wealthy man going into a third world country uh, to do a, like a, a work with impoverished people. And he was, he was kind of observing, maybe he was brought in to, to have some vision for funding this organization. And he just saw hundreds of people lining up for food, uh, mothers and, and crying babies and, and fathers who wished they could work but instead had, it, had to go ask for, for bread to be put on the table just so that their kids would be full that night. And so this line is very long, and, and, but people are waiting with such hope and eagerness to receive the food. And as the day goes on, hundreds of people are fed. But at a certain point, the line stops. And he looks over. He's like, why aren't you giving this family food? And they said, we ran out. And they had to send dozens of people away just hungry and disappointed and, and desperate. And he went home and he said, I'm going to give my life so that we don't run out of food. I'm going to give my, my money. He invited all of his richest friends to the table. He said, we need to make sure that everyone gets food, that the end of the line gets food. There's a sense that he felt the pain, he was willing to hold it, and he did ministry out of that. And so many of us who are in ministry, 
Isn't that the space that really sustains our ministry? You know, thinking about the salvation of someone in college and hearing the gospel for the first time and, and not having to um, just live for pleasure or, or ministering to someone who has special needs and seeing their joy and, and being accepted and dancing with them. Um, serving families that have gone through domestic violence and having their kids trust and feel safe. We feel the pain, and then, and then the ministry becomes sustainable. So I guess what the director was telling me from the camp was don't numb the pain. Don't run from it. Don't minimize it. And isn't that most of what we do <laughs> with pain? And I would say our generation has more tools for that than any other generation, right? To distract ourselves by binging on Netflix, to just uh, do a quick flick so that we don't have to stare down something that's heart-wrenching and we could look at cat videos from the early 2000s again. Or just saying, man, there's, this hurts, but it'll go away. I think in order for us to do real sustainable ministry, in order for us to look like Jesus, we are willing to live with pain in our hearts. And we can't live with all the pain in the world, but I think God's gifted each of us with a specific pain that he's calling us to steward and he's calling us to, to move into, not to run away from, not to dodge, not to numb, but to walk into. And that's the courage of Jesus. He walks into the pain. You know, when I look at this first passage of Jesus going into Jerusalem, again, if you look at the, the movement of Matthew, this last uh, chapters, we see him headed towards Jerusalem. That it was intentional. It was thoughtful. Him moving towards his sacrifice. Him moving towards the pain. And here, when we look at this passage, we see that Jesus is the one, this is a really like, it feels like a very minor prophecy. Oh, he talked about donkeys and they were there. You know, like why put that in scripture? But I think it's to fulfill a prophecy from 500 years ago that God is orchestrating. But it's also saying that Jesus is determining his destiny. He wasn't a victim. He sacrificed. He released power. It wasn't taken away from him. Isn't that the difference between sacrifice and being victimized, right? Victimized, someone else takes from you. But when you sacrifice, you freely give. And when, when Pilate is lording his life over him, saying, hey, don't you know I have the power to save your life or to kill you? Jesus says this to him, right to his face. He says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily because I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my father has commanded. Uh, you know, again, a great conversation with Dave, in the, Pastor Dave, in the face of um, Pilate. He says, I'm the one who's giving something up. And I think that's what pain does. Pain allows us to sacrifice. Pain allows us to live uncomfortably. And to sacrifice means pain too, right? When we sacrifice something, we, we voluntarily take up pain. I'm going to make this statement. I think it's profound, but I'm not sure it's fully true. So <laughs> uh, it says, I said, Jesus walked towards sacrifice, walked towards the cross, walked towards Calvary 
because it was a lesser pain. And I wrote partly because I think there's many reasons why he takes on the cross, right? To glorify the Father, to show the manifold wisdom of God, um, to demonstrate his mercy, to show who he is. But I think there's a, an aspect of him moving towards the cross because it was the lesser pain. He, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This great love of God allowed him to have compassion for us and take on our pain. And somehow the sacrifice of his son, because of his great love and compassion, this pain is the lesser pain compared to losing his kids, compared to us not being in relationship with him, compared to us drowning in our own sin. And when I think about why people sacrifice the way they do, you know, the great heroes, the Mother Teresas, the martyrs, those who give up extraordinary things in order to serve another, I think it's because the pain of sacrifice is lesser than the pain that they feel for the other. And we always go towards the lesser pain, right? Whether that's choosing to eat pork or losing a finger, what are we asking ourselves? What hurts less? And I think when God starts opening up our hearts and we don't run or numb or minimize and we just let the pain grow in a healthy way, right, in a God way where, we're, where it doesn't fill us with pride, where it doesn't fill us with judgment of another, where it doesn't incapacitate our ability to love or to be joyful or, you know, all those things. In a healthy way, when that pain grows, we choose to sacrifice. I think about, again, very small sacrifices I made going into this foster kids camp. I hate sleeping on anything but a Tempur-Pedic mat. You know, like I'm just that way. You know the story of the princess and the pea? I am the princess, okay? You can stack 15 mattresses and put a pea under. I'm like, there's something here, right? I'm the princess. And yet I was like, man, there's greater pain. Um, I felt greater pain for these foster kids than I, have, than I did for my own back, right? That's a, such a small example. But I wonder, I wonder what type of pain I will have to take on in order to be a foster parent, in order to adopt in order to um, really sacrifice more for this category, more. There's a pain that I have to hold. And, and it has to overcome the pain of comfort, of losing comfort. So I wonder if we've seen the pain as a gift. I wonder if we're willing to hold it. I wonder if we're willing to let it go. And, and it has to be a pain that comes from the Lord, right? It can't be just guilt. It can't be, um, it can't be lesser. It has to be a God pain. But he's given us all a God pain. And I hope that as we let it grow, it will lead to sacrifice. I think that's when I know this pain has taken hold of someone's life. Because I see the sacrifice that came with the pain, that somehow you gave up Netflix to sponsor that kid, and I'm like, oh, that's painful. Giving up Netflix is really painful, right? Or you give up a weekend or every weekend to serve or a Tuesday or a Monday night. I'm like, oh, that's painful, and therefore I see that this pain has meant sacrifice. It's overweighed 
your comfort. That's saying something. What, what, how have we let that happen in our life? And the third part, um, again, this is, this is Jesus running into, uh, riding into Jerusalem, but we see a really shallow worship of him. Um, and, but it's extravagant. People are spraying their cloaks on the road. They're cutting off all his uh, branches and putting it in front of him. They're shouting, Hosanna, son of David. And actually, in the Luke passage, the Pharisees rebuke him, and Jesus says, hey, if they don't shout, the rocks are going to shout out, right? And we get this really thin version of the great glorification of Jesus. It's, it's this foreshadow. Right now, it's, they don't get it, and so when he doesn't conquer Rome, uh, many people who shout Hosanna are also shouting crucify him. It's the same crowd. But at the end of time, there's a great joy where, where because he subjects people, not through the sword, but through the cross and compassion and sacrifice, people sing Hosanna in a totally different way. It's not because there's a gun to their head or a knife on their throat. Right? You can, help, you can have me say, I love you and you're my king if you put a knife to my throat. I'll do it. I, probably, I for sure would do it. But my heart wouldn't be there. Jesus decides to conquer hearts by feeling compassion, by sacrificing. We will all, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on earth, above the earth, and under the earth. Jesus is Lord. And so there is a joy to the sacrifice and the pain, but it comes afterward, right? It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so here's the, here's the order, if you will. We don't step in for joy, right? If, if me and Nina's like, hey, I, I think we should adopt a kid, foster a kid, because we'll feel good about it. I think like 12 hours later, <laughs> right, the kid's gone, <laughs> Because the joy doesn't last for very long. But, but if you enter into ministry because of compassion and you're willing to hold another person's pain and that pain grows in a healthy and godly way, you will sacrifice. And after the sacrifice, there will be joy. Think about Philippians 2. Isn't that modeling the, the life, the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ? Right? He, he considered equality with God something that he, could, that he let go of, right? Not to be grasped. He became a man. He became a servant. And then he died on the cross. But what happens? God exalts him to the highest place. That there's this earthly sacrifice and, and humility for heavenly or future glory and joy. You know, um, here's, a, here's a silly story. So, uh, when I was at the camp, I was the wolf. So, I, so there's this play that goes on, a skit. And um, uh, Lindsay was there, by the way. We had a great time. Um, and I was, I was Wobble the Wolf. I was a multi-dimensional villain, very lovable. And every, every day I would, fight, I would fight to try to eat one of the sheep in the skits, which are other counselors. And then the shepherd would come and beat beat me up, and I would run the scene, run away from the scene. I did that like five times, right? I was very unsuccessful. But when you're on a skit team at a kid's camp, you're like one step away from Miley Cyrus or 
Miley Cyrus from 10 years ago, right? You're like one step away from being on television, from being a celebrity. So I'm walking around the camp, and all these kids like know me. I have like this camp identity, and I would totally stay in character. I would like have wolf conversations dozens of times a day, right? Some little kid would walk up to me and like, don't eat my, don't eat my counselor, don't eat sheep, you're a bad wolf. And I'm like, didn't you just have hamburgers for lunch? you're a hypocrite because you ate cows, you know? And then other kids would be like, hey, she's a sheep. Let's go hunt her, you know? And they're kind of the bad kids. And then uh, little, little girls would walk around with, like, stuffed animals of, like, uh, dogs and, um, and uh, rabbits. I'm like, your bunny's making me hungry. <laughs> As they're just walking to lunch. And she's like, no. I'm like, are you a shepherd? And she's like, I'm the shepherd. And I would run away because I can't fight shepherds because they're they overpower wolves. Oh, and then we had this uh, hayride. We had the hayride where all the kids jumped in, and when they would tractor you, you know, throughout the, the camp. And there was a part where you cross a bridge, and then you pass a house, and then there's, like, the wooded area. And then I only told the camp director, I was like, I'm going to dress up as a wolf and jump out, right, like Halloween haunt. And so they're coming in, and then I, like, see them, and then I jump out. I'm like, Rawr! and I, like, bang on the thing. And then I set up the second scene where they kind of do a loop. And they come back, and I have a hose from the house, and I'm just watering the bush. And I just look at them apathetically. I just keep watering. And there was this really interesting thing that happened, right? Because I'm serving these kids, and I become this really safe uh, person at camp, uh, someone they could talk to, someone they could yell at, someone they could paint my nails, you know? And I just had this amazing uh, sense of, of, of love, uh, for the kids, but I received really amazing love too, and in a really special way, because there's a kid Wilson that you guys have heard about. He was bullied a lot. He was really nerdy. He was rejected. He had no friends, and then there's this divorce and chasm, and then there's the adult Wilson, right, who, um, you know, feels accepted and loved and maybe popular, if you will, because I get to speak at different places, but when people give me affirmation and, and care and love, I, it's isolated to adult Wilson. So adult Wilson feels all those things. But it never translates into kid Wilson because it's like you wouldn't like kid Wilson. Kid Wilson was a dork. But at the camp, kid Wilson came out to play. And he was scared and he was afraid of rejection. And he didn't know if people would like him. But that's how all the kids felt there. And then... Kid Wilson got to play and make friends and be the wolf. And there was this deep healing that happened in my soul. A deep joy of like when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and meet someone else's vulnerability, we're both healed. Um, I remember interviewing for this camp position and the same woman who debriefed me, you know, she asked me what my greatest pains were, and I, I shared about my childhood. And then she said, you know, I have this other volunteer that helps with, um, you know, the foster uh, community. And she came in, and she's smart, she's educated, she's successful, she's beautiful. And, and she was just frustrated that no one could, like, relate to her, and everyone kind of had walls up. And when she, when she talked to her, she said, hey, what's the greatest pain you've been through? And she, she went there. You know, she went there. And, and then after she shared her story, um, the director said, go into that room broken and hurt and minister out of that. 
And it's amazing to see this joy of healing for our brokenness and theirs. So I wonder, what is the God-given pain that he wants you to not run away from, but to hold and for it to grow? And then out of that, how is he calling you to sacrifice? How is he calling you to start weighing your comfort and your ambitions and the things you want with someone else's uh, needs? And then what is, what is the future joy? We have a few minutes. I would love for us to come back together. I'll, I'll close this in prayer, but kind of whoever you shared that opening question with, I wonder if you'll help uh, each other process these things as well. Because I think so much of our calling, so much of our time on this earth, so much of the real good we can do is out of seeing the pain that God's placed in our heart for another person. And many times it's reflective of our own pain, and we get to use it and find redemption for both. God, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you talk about the servants being first, and then you served. You talked about those who mourn uh, and weep, finding joy and comfort, and then you're willing to mourn and to weep. And you talk about sacrificing, that a, a good friend lays his life down. And as you're looking at your closest friends on this earth, you know what the road to Jerusalem meant. God, allow us to live how you lived. I just pray that in this moment, we would just start to um, discover or hold the compassion and pain you've asked us to hold. In Jesus' name. Will you take a few minutes to just share with one another? You can put that slide back up, Mark. And um, yeah, I just would love to process. And then in five minutes, we'll take communion and move into our, our worship set.